WBZ original. When we were derelict teenagers, we'd go into a store and we'd go up to the peeps and just put our oh, thumb yeah. through the... <laughs> You vandal. I know. Oh, that's terrible. Statue limitations. The dark, the dark background of John Keller. Welcome into Studio BZ, the day after Election Day here in America. Everyone... Tired watching the results pour in last night. A little weary. The good news, the midterms are over and 2020 has begun. So we're going to break down the local races, uh, look at the governor's race, the Senate race, and talk about what exactly happened last night. We're also going to talk about housing costs in Boston. It seems all anyone is talking about lately. Uh, We're looking for solutions Mayor Marty Walsh has called this an emergency, and there's a regional initiative in the Boston area to build more residential units. And how about this? Liam, you're a Harvard grad. Maybe you can uh, (laughs) shed some insight on this. Have Harvard researchers identified an alien spaceship? Well, well, you know, well if anyone that. could. They, they were searching for intelligent life, and they passed <laughs> us by. And they couldn't find <laughs> it on the Harvard campus. <laughs> Sorry, Harvard. Well, here we are, sleep-deprived. Boy, did I want a beer when I got home the other night. But had to go to bed and get some rest. And here we are in the wake of the midterm elections. Let's talk a little bit about what happened here in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. uh, where it was just a field day for incumbents uh, pretty much across the board. Let's start by talking about Governor Charlie Baker. Kind of cracks me up. Reporters today, Wednesday, as we're taping here, uh, were asking the governor, well, uh, what about a third term? He's just been reelected to a second term. And the reason they were doing that is in 2010, uh, within days of then-Governor Patrick's reelection to a second term, uh, somebody asked him the question about a third term, and he said, absolutely not, I won't be a candidate for a third term. Thus, rendering himself a lame duck. Right. Because even, uh, perhaps more so for a Democrat, but even for a Republican governor, a large amount of your clout depends on the notion that, well, we're going to have to deal with this guy or gal over for an extended period of time here. We don't know how long. We better find a way to get along with him or her. But uh, Baker, as uh, characteristically, sidestepped the whole thing. But um, what gets me, Liam and Paula, is at this point, the nickname that the far right in Massachusetts has for Governor Baker, Rhino, Mm -hmm. Republican in name only, I mean, who's to really refute it at this point? He governs pretty much like a Democrat. He gets along great with Democrats. Democrats were on stage introducing him at his victory rally the other night. So He called President Trump disgraceful. Disgraceful. Several local Democratic mayors appeared in his campaign ads and appeared on stage with him after his election night victory. So are there, just technically, John, are there any term limits? Not for governor. Not for, so not so he, not for governor. In theory, if he <laughs> wants to keep running, this guy could be governor for life. Well, what is he? Sixty-one, I believe. So, and the interesting thing to remember man. about Charlie Baker is how he's learned. Remember when he ran for governor the first time, and some of his outings were frankly embarrassing yeah. to the fact to the point where when he ran for his 
the next time when he was elected for his first term, I interviewed him with his wife at his house. And, you know, one of the questions was voters pre, you know, in the last election just really didn't like you. Mm. And he put his hands up and he said, he almost sang and he said, oh, that's right, personality. And he started <laughs> to describe about how he really had to work on himself well, and improve let, his let entire me, presentation. Let what a turnaround. Com- let me be completely candid about this. Charlie Baker, along with his many wonderful attributes, can be a little bit of a jerk at times, a little bit of a sort of imperious, I'm the smartest person in the room, and I was even before you came in. Um, And he's worked hard and done a good job of keeping that pretty much under wraps. Keep in mind, he closed that first run for governor in uh, in 2010, where he lost to Deval Patrick, with a press conference denouncing... Uh, welfare fraud, EBT fraud, Mm. where he opposed at the press conference alongside a giant blown up mock-up of an EBT card with Governor Patrick's face on it. Yeah, that's not his style. Think about how far about his political arc that he's traveled from that moment to what we see today. It's remarkable. He's learned how he has to win in Massachusetts. Um, Do you think, just off the top of your head, that at any point He'll have presidential ambitions or, or on the vice presidential ticket potentially because you were saying last night when I asked you that question, there's no way he can win a Republican primary in, in America. Not in this era. No. I, I mean, you know, possibly he could be competitive in a New Hampshire primary because New Hampshire Republicans in general tend to the more moderate, Mm -hmm. although you wouldn't have known it from Donald Trump's success uh, four years ago or or two years ago, I should say, Uh, and familiarity with him from the media overlap between uh, Boston and New Hampshire would help him. Uh, You know, that's why every Massachusetts politician from the level of alderman on up uh, harbors fantasies of shopping for drapes for the Oval Office because New Hampshire's right next door. But uh, I just don't see that. He he adamantly denies it publicly and privately, and I just don't see that as him. No. Uh, I think he loves the wonkiness of being the governor. For a guy like him, a policy wonk, governor is a perfect job. It's True. a great job. Local guy. He loves living in Swampscott. Played basketball at Harvard. We all know his uh, his resume. He seems like one of those people who really enjoys this role in Massachusetts. And as we heard from the president at his freewheeling press conference uh, today after Election Day, he started to sort of, it was described as dancing on the graves of all the Republicans in the House who lost. He mm-hmm. said, Mia Love didn't show me any love. Right. He's gone. So he pointed out, if you're not going to align yourself with President Trump, you're going nowhere in the GOP nationally. On the other hand, as a good card-carrying political pundit, you know, you always want to hedge your bets here. Having been so adamant that you'll never see Charlie Baker running for president, what if the Trump era, the Trump era Republican Party, were to collapse in in a smoldering heap the way that... The Republican Party establishment imploded uh, under the weight of Donald Trump's attacks. What if the same thing were to happen and the party says, oh, my God, we went way that too right. That is very possible once they're, that Trump is gone. 
Yeah, I mean... If it's mostly about him and his personality. The the notion that that's now the long-term status quo of the Republican Party seems a bit presumptuous. Uh, if it were to collapse, wouldn't a guy like Charlie Baker... Yeah, although I still freshly scrubbed and squeaky clean. I still do think, though, even before President Trump, Charlie Baker would have been a long shot. He's pro-abortion rights, pro-gun control. Absolutely. On a wide variety of issues, he's not a real Republican primary type candidate. And I don't think switching parties would help him much at this point. But speaking of the other party, what about Senator Elizabeth Warren? I want to hear what you you guys think. We've talked here off and on about the— uh, the whole Warren for president thing. <laughs> there, no one doubts that she's made every move she needs to to be in position. She has acknowledged she's taking a, quote, hard look at it. I just learned today that there are some hardcore Warren supporters who are starting a postcard campaign to mail postcards to her home in Cambridge, begging her to drop the presidential thing and commit to staying as our senator for at least the next six years, arguing that she can do, that we need her, she can do much more here, this presidential thing is folly. I thought that was kind of interesting, and it's in line with the poll results we talked about last week with Dave Paleologos from over at Suffolk, showing that people here in Massachusetts don't want her to do it. What If you were betting men and women, what would your bet be? Ooh, I have no idea. I mean, we've been saying that if she won her Senate race easily, she might be more encouraged to test the waters for a presidential run. She won 60% to 36%. She won by 14 percentage points. That's a big win. It's comfortable, but not a huge win. I I think if you're you're planning to be a Democratic (laughs) primary candidate for president and you're running in Massachusetts as an incumbent in a blue wave year and you beat a first-time statewide office runner by only 14 points, a guy that no one had ever heard of, I just – I don't see a lot of evidence points. there. 24 points, not I'm 14. sorry. Yes, of course, 24 points. I don't see a whole lot of evidence there. You know, the margin, her 60 percent, that's consistent with what Ted Kennedy rang up when he was faced with was serious – Opposition, Ray Shammy uh, uh, back in the 80s, uh, Joe Malone. Mitt Rom- How do you 80s. do against Mitt Romney? What was that number? Uh, that was, I believe, like 58%. Right. Here's what I think is interesting. Clearly, Democratic st- strategists got really alarmed during the Kavanaugh hearings and spoke to their campaigns. And in the last three to four weeks here leading up to the midterms, what did you not hear largely from Democratic candidates, Russia, Kavanaugh, abolish ICE, or impeachment. You did not hear those four things in the four weeks leading up to Election Day. And perhaps, again, being a senator from Massachusetts who's such a liberal firebrand, perhaps the party nationally will go to her and say, this just isn't a good idea. Well, you know, on the other hand, uh, first of all, she's not from Massachusetts. She's from Oklahoma. Well, Didn't you notice the uh, video? In the, uh, that video, she, she wanted to point and, that out. And there she was on election night talking all about women. And it was a big night for women. That was it one certainly of the was. big stories of the midterms. But if it's now the era of, of women and the party nominee, there's pressure for the party nominee to be a woman— well, that narrows the field down considerably, does it not? Sure. Uh, so, uh, look, I think 
that uh, there's going to be a period of, of reflection over the next couple of months for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I mentioned Ted Kennedy. He's a good role model. His foray into presidential politics in 1980 was a total disaster. And then he licked his wounds, recovered, and turned into not only one of the most effective senators the of his lion era, of the Senate. but uh, really a national figure with arguably if not as much clout as a president, certainly a lot of clout and the ability to draw attention to his core issues and be a national figure. Can we move on to just skip over and talk about the national balance of power and what it means for Massachusetts? Because Liam and I have been talking about this in the whole summer leading up. I kept thinking and remarking, if the Democrats, as they do now control the House, Representative Jim McGovern of Worcester becomes chairman of the House Rules Committee. Every bill has to go through that committee. Mm-hmm. Arguably now the fifth most powerful person in Washington. Uh, Richard Neal becomes chairman of Ways and Means. Uh, this means a lot for the delegation. In another time, when Ayanna Presley unseated Mike Capuano, people might have said, why would you give up that incumbency? He's going to be so powerful within the delegation, but we're going to have a lot of power here. Richard Neal, by the way... I believe has already signaled that he's going to subpoena President right. Trump's tax for returns, his tax which, return. Uh, that could be quite the fight for the next two years because the president has already said they can do what they want to do. I'll do what I want to do. In other words, suggesting I might just ignore that subpoena. And <laughs> we're going to see how this turns out. If that ends up going to the Supreme Court, I just think Richard Neal, Jim McGovern are going to be at the center of the universe here over the next they two years. They are. And you have your Seth Moltens wanting to overthrow Nancy Pelosi, right? But John, mm-hmm. wouldn't you call them both probably good soldiers for her? The leadership is unlikely to change at least the push for it within the Massachusetts Well, that would delegation. be my guess. Yeah. Apparently, Pelosi, by all accounts, what I'm reading suggests she played a key role in the, the kind of message discipline that you just described, Paula. And by the way, though, we're going to be talking about him a whole lot more. Uh, uh, Liam, I, uh, nobody calls him Richard Neal. Okay. He's Richie Neal. <laughs> Richie. <laughs> Richie. He From might Western not Mass. like that. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> I've never heard anyone call him Richard. Richie kind Neal. Of, you kind of startled me there. But <laughs> Speaking yeah, look, of Nancy I, Pelosi, I think the smartest thing she said to all her Democratic members was, I don't care what you say about me. If you have to go out and say I'm the worst leader and the worst person in the world, go right ahead. Just win. Well, That was smart. Look, it's, it's great news to have some seniority, clout. It doesn't mean what it once did back in the days of Tip O'Neill and Joe Mobley. The cigar smoke-filled rooms. But it still (laughs) means a lot. And listen, uh, it's going to be an interesting time for our delegation because uh, I I don't think you're going to see Richie Neal or Jim McGovern in there uh, calling for budget discipline, right? Now that they're in a position to uh, send more pork our way, they're going to want to do it. Just as Elizabeth Warren, ever since she got on the Armed Services Committee, uh, you no longer hear her uh, ranting about defense spending. Right. right. <laughs> because well, that's crucial to the Massachusetts economy, and that's been part of her whole thing. So kind of an interesting time for these liberal Democrats. I did think in terms of Jim McGovern, not that any of us know any of this, but you know, it is interesting when you think about somebody else from some other state 
state coming to him on a transportation bill and asking for their bridge or what have you. And Jim McGovern might say, gee, I'd love a little highway to go by my, I don't know, new minor league ballpark yeah. in Worcester, Massachusetts <laughs> for the newly named Paw Sox. I mean, there's a lot on the line for Massachusetts moving forward. Listen, before we move on to other stuff, just a couple of cleanup items from the election. Uh, fair to say that the pollsters have been vindicated pretty much? Although in some states, not so much. That continues uh, to be problematic. Indiana but, was off. But Missouri nationally, was off. I mean, right. you it and wasn't I, a wave, but the House did go to the Democrats. Well, you know. I what, think it was a wave. I 7% think, uh, uh, in terms of the quote-unquote popular vote, although it's in different districts. No, I'd say, uh, you know, uh, there have been mid-year elections. Yes, it's true that the out party usually makes gains, although right. not always. Sometimes those gains are very small. This was, sure. this I'd was say this was a wave. This it was, was body surfable. They took more, about 30 seats. Not all of them have settled yet. They yeah. took uh, several governor's offices, several state legislatures. They passed the the voting rights amendment in Florida to reinstate voting rights to convicted felons. So in several ways, they have helped reshape the field Democrats have for 2020. The CNN political pollster who was on this morning, I can't remember his name, just when they asked him this question, he just said, well, I'm not going to get fired. (laughs) So that's all he cared about. And, you know, one (laughs) other thing here, getting back to Massachusetts, we had this question two on the ballot, the sort of, should we create this citizens commission to uh, basically formulate a plan for overturning Citizens United, the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court ruling that says that it's, uh, that lifted a lot of limits on on campaign the corporations are spending. people. Yeah, uh, corporations are people. Uh, I, I, I could pretty much guarantee you that at least for the foreseeable future, there is no support for that in Washington because you saw the Democrats who've been mainly the ones carrying the torch for campaign finance reform. They were the ones that were swimming in dough, both corporate donations and small dollar donations. But they are loving right now the Citizens United era. And another thing about Citizens United is it not only lifted constraints on campaign fundraising and spending uh, by corporations, it also lifted similar constraints on unions. And the unions in a period of sort of declining or at best stable enrollment. Need to get their message out. They need to get their message out more than ever. They don't want to have their hands tied when it comes to uh, pumping money into their campaign issues. Let's be honest. Whenever there's cash just sloshing around Washington, D.C., you're not going to hear a lot of complaints from members of Congress. All due respect <laughs> to the arguments for it, uh, that's, that's not going anywhere. There is a housing shortage in the city of Boston and the greater Boston area that Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has characterized as an emergency. Uh, there is, you know, there lots of press coverage about how it has spurred an initiative in the Boston area to build more residential units. Um, the mayor recently increased uh, the new housing target by th- 30% to 69,000 additional units by 2030, mm. which is a lot. 
because these prices have become so out of sight yeah. for young people, for families to live in Boston. It's really reached a crisis situation. And in fact, we just have the annual Bloomberg Global City Housing Cost Index, and it has Boston as one of the 10 fastest rising housing price cities in the world not even in the country anymore in the world so it is it's getting out of control and a lot of people are you know they've got their their young son or daughter who's a young professional in Boston trying to figure out how can they afford rent um, could they it's certainly not going to be able to afford to buy at this point. And there's this new app that has now come onto the market developed by two students at MIT. And the app is called Nesterly. And what it does is it takes uh, older people who have extra space in their houses, empty nesters, the baby boom generation, and pairs them with young professionals who can't afford rent in a city like Boston. Uh, Yeah, students as well. And says, hey, you can live in this empty nester's house at a much reduced rate from what you'd see on the open market, you've got access to a kitchen. And the founder um, said specifically one of her goals was to start trying to connect the generations, which she, she said seem more disconnected than ever. What a fantastic idea. Isn't it great? Uh, just a great idea. Great on the level that you just mentioned, Liam, of the idea of more interconnectedness. As a business model, I'm wondering if this could wind up being another Uber mm. kind of situation where the conventional housing market, which is so rapacious financially, uh, gets undercut by this. It'd be very interesting to see what the housing industry's reaction to this is. Well, we decided to speak to the founder, who is an MIT grad, about how she got this idea as an undergraduate and how well it's going so far. Now, Nesterly was founded in 2017, and it connects older homeowners with young people who are looking for a place to live. And the co-founder and CEO, Noel Marcus, joins us now. Noel, thanks so much for coming in to talk about this. Happy to be here. Ingenious idea. So you <laughs> were a student at MIT. Yeah. How did you originally come up with this idea? So before I founded Nesterly, I saw three big trends that were happening with my parents and their peers. One is that it's becoming more expensive for people to stay in their homes as they get older. Mm. Rising property taxes, increasing home maintenance costs, and also just general rising costs of living. Two is that some household chores are not as easy to do or as enjoyable as they maybe used to be, like changing a light bulb and getting on a ladder or shoveling snow or maybe learning a new technology. Um, And then finally, generations are more disconnected than they've ever been. Mm. So that's why I started Nesterly, to connect households who have extra space with young people who can Mm. help around the house in exchange for lower rent. And on the other side, housing is just so expensive, especially in Boston. We've heard all the stories about it. Is it unsustainable at this point? I know you studied urban planning at MIT for people to live alone in Boston as a young professional. So it's extremely expensive to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why there's over 90,000 extra bedrooms in the homes of baby boomers just in Boston proper and Cambridge alone. And that number is growing every day. So how do we help young people access jobs and access opportunities Mm -hmm. and be able to afford rent? We we think that this is a really great win-win solution. And let's talk about how your prices are set Mm. because... 
you, you have people who might save a lot by living there and then older people who might make some rental income. So what are the prices you're looking at? So the older household or the household can set whatever price they want. We, our mission is to create more affordable housing in the city. So we strongly encourage people to create, to put affordable rents on, on the platform. Mm -hmm. um, what we find is they're about 20 to 30 percent below market rate. Hmm which is a really big deal for, for someone who's wow. struggling. And for young people who might be looking at paying rent in several thousands of dollars a month, about what's the average that 700. they're paying? So wow. they're paying $700 a month. Including utilities, um, internet. That's water. way less than the average that you'd see otherwise. And are they just renting a room, or can you use the house? So we designed the platform to be really flexible and adaptable. So you might have... Um, an ADU, an um, additional dwelling unit, where someone has their own bathroom and private space, sure. or they could just rent a room in your home, mm -hmm. and you get to decide how much you want to share your space. Do they have complete kitchen access, or do they maybe go out to eat more often? So it's really up to the household, whatever they feel most comfortable with. You mentioned this before, but is part of your motivation to, to bring generations together, uh, do you see value in that, or is this just where you saw there made sense financially to connect these two groups? We're definitely trying to bring generations back together. And why do you want to do that? Well, we've really lived this way throughout history. We've mm. always lived with other generations, and it's today in the United States that we're more separated than we've ever been. See, this is my theory. We were talking about this, that really young people, too, living alone in apartments has only been a phenomenon of the last 50 or 60 years, exactly. right? Yes. And it doesn't seem really sustainable when it's this expensive. And you need that inter intergenerational interaction for everybody to be happy. Exactly. So we're seeing higher rates of social isolation, not just amongst older households that might be living alone, but also amongst younger people. Mm. Yeah. And the people you interact with on the site, though, is there really a market for this? Do you, do you really find younger people, their friends are all living by themselves in their frat house or whatever it might be, who are interested in living with someone who's older than they are, but not a relative? So we've seen hundreds of people signing up every month to do this. Wow. People mm -hmm. are really excited and enthusiastic to live with someone who might be a little bit more mature, a little bit more stable. Maybe they get to have a dog in their home or a garden, and they get amenities that they wouldn't get in a dorm. Yeah. What's a great success story that you've seen? Well, um, we've had a lot of great success stories. They've pretty much all been incredible. Um, mm -hmm. We had a woman named Brenda in Roxbury host a student named Phoebus, and he was from Greece and cooked her Greek meals, and she toured him around her neighborhood, and she made an extra $650 a month um, for eight months hosting him. And that income really made a big difference. And a lot of great Greek meals. And a lot of great Greek meals. <laughs> Home-cooked meals, uh, cheaper housing, it all makes sense. Yeah. Noel Marcus, co-founder of Nesterly, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you very much. Great. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown, mile of downtown Experts at Harvard say this cigar-shaped object spotted last year could be an alien ship. But Harvard researchers say some more obvious explanations have been ruled out. WBZ's Paul Burton has the story. This is the very first object that was discovered in the solar system that originated from outer space. Scientists say tumbling through our solar system right now is this strange cigar-shaped object called Uamuamua. Which in Hawaiian means uh, a visitor from far away coming here for the first time. Harvard University professor Abi Loeb says the object was discovered last year. He says it's not a comet or an asteroid. And while there's no scientific proof, it could be something from another life form. Could be a space debris from an advanced technological equipment that is either defunct 
or operational. We don't know. Maybe it's a reconnaissance emission coming uh, to the inner part of the solar system to look around. Like an alien ship? Our suggestion is that it may be a light sail. A light sail is a sail pushed by light, just like uh, a sailboat is being pushed by the wind. Professor Loeb says the object is now moving out of our solar system and will take thousands of years to do so. However, he also says it's too late for scientists to find that object again in space with the technology we have today. With conventional rockets, we cannot catch up with it. Uh, however, if we develop uh, better technology for propulsion, we could potentially in the future chase it down and, and reach it. So, this got a lot of headlines yesterday. <laughs> Those are Harvard researchers. Harvard researchers, we're not talking, you know, some uh, some crazy group of some people somewhere. These hat. are yeah, no, these are these are legit scientists who say this odd object that was detected last year flying by the sun might be some sort of alien spacecraft, that it might be artificial in some way. And they base it on the fact that it accelerated as it went by the sun. And they argue there there's not a very good explanation for that other than some sort of uh, solar sail is what they're calling it. In other words, they're watching Something it. It's that going used along. The power it's of flying. The they see it as it goes by the sun and it starts to accelerate as it goes by the sun. And they wonder, well, why, what made that do that other than some sort of design to it? Um, I am immediately a skeptic of any time we say alien. And yet these are Harvard researchers. Oh, oh, and it does see, pique my interest. I completely think it's absurd. It's an absurd notion to think that we are the only life Oh, I agree here. with that 100%. And yes. I think every time the Hubble telescope or any of these – great NASA projects is underway. It just drives home again. We know about as much about the universe and the planet and where we are in the scheme of things as we do about the top of the head of a pen. I mean, I just think if the human actually understood how much we don't know, it would make <laughs> your brain hurt and be so terrifying that every time there is one of these sort of close encounters, it just fills me with dread and fear. Now, uh, am I confused? I thought I thought I saw a write-up on this in the paper, and there was like a mock-up of what it looked like. Yes. Like, like a long... It wasn't an actual photo. No. Rock. Yeah, it looked like a Slim Jim. Yes, it did. It did. There, there it is. is. right there. Jonathan is Where showing Jonathan, our us. producer, is showing yeah, us. or like a very large joint. Mm. Like well, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Maybe it's a 420 sign yeah. from the universe. Well, actually, that could help... Groovy. That could help uh, explain how the Harvard researchers came up with this idea, <laughs> actually, frankly. But I will say that there are other scientists who yeah. are quoted in several of these articles saying let's not get ahead of ourselves yeah. there probably is some it's probably an asteroid of some sort there might be some other explanation or it's uh, their space junk that be yes right exactly oops uh, but but i do think that you're right paula that too frequently we just go all right come on it's not an alien thing there's no way it could be when really when there really? probably are at least out there somewhere something, whether or not I could build something this sophisticated that's flying by our sun. And as I was saying, if it was looking for intelligent life, it didn't stop. <laughs> it accelerated. It didn't stop, John. In fact, it accelerated. It said, let's get out of here. Passed right over Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. So do you want us to do an interview, uh, intro about the mayor or just skip it? 
Okay. I we'll think. We'll let, I think we gotta just go. Time. All right. Okay. So, well, we can say we're going to do that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Liam and I have to skedaddle because we've got an interview with Mayor Marty Walsh down in the studio. <laughs> Joining us tonight is the Mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been a long time. It yes, has it, been. too long. It's too always long. good to Glad see. You're back. So we're the day after Election Day here in America. First off, your reaction to the midterms. Well, I'm glad that the Democrats uh, went back the House uh, to have a little balance here uh, in, in all of the things that aren't happening in Washington, and hopefully now we can push some some legislation forward. Somebody asked me this morning what I thought was important. I said transportation, education, funding. I think if, if you really can get to an immigration uh, reform type of package to deal with immigration and, and also DACA, those are things that we can get done now, and, and there won't be any excuses. The Democrats should be able to, working with Republicans, hopefully the Republicans will feel comfortable enough to be able to vote and do what they want to do Feel, feel that really get some things moving in this country. Mm. We, we've been stagnant for for probably about eight years now in, in the Congress, and, and we really need to move forward. And let's talk specifically about what it means for the city of Boston, because as you talk about the Democrats retaking control of the House, that means Representative Jim McGovern of Worcester becomes chairman of the Rules Committee. Representative Richard Neal becomes chairman of Ways and Means. I spoke to the boat last night. At I'm sure you did. <laughs> so you know, what are you hoping they might be able to that's, help that, out that's with? That's really incredible. I, I mean. You know, we haven't had that type of clout or, or, or leadership, uh, that high-level leadership in Congress since Tip O'Neill, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Moakley, and, and Ted Kennedy. And, and that's no disrespect to the folks that are there now. They're working hard, but they have they have the, the seniority and they have the ability now to to lead these lead these 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 uh, different committees and move them forward. And uh, I was watching one of the the news outlets last night talking about um, Richie Neal. How about how he's a gentleman? He works across the aisle. Uh, everyone likes him, and that's important to have somebody uh, in that role that actually will work with other people. And it is about working with Democrats yeah. and Republicans. Listen, I'm a Democrat, but to move the country forward uh, and to move the state forward, you, you, ha you have the election, you battle each other out, you, you, you do what you have to do to get elected, now you're elected, now you have. Now it's the pot that you have to work together. And of course, Jim McGovern is the protege of Joe Moakley. And I, said, so. I mentioned mm. that last night to Jim as well when I spoke to him, the congressman, about uh, Joe Moakley was my congressman um, back in the day, and uh, I said, you know, Joe's looking down the fact that you're in his his old his old uh, seat, mm. uh, and I think that's great. And then the other congressional people, you know, uh, Steve Lynch and and, mm -hmm. and, and Kennedy and, and Clark and and all all of our delegation. Ayanna Presley. Ayanna Presley. I mean the new the new Ayanna and and, and also uh, Laurie Trahan mm -hmm. uh, won sure. last night. Um, so you know, there's a real opportunity here uh, for leadership in Massachusetts for the country, not necessarily for Massachusetts for the country. And I think that uh, having that is important. And I, I just hope that we get off on the right foot. It's been it's been such a uh, a very volatile uh, relationship in Washington for the last two years, and I think that we have to get back to some sort of normalcy here um, to move our move our country forward in so many different ways. Let's get to Boston's climate readiness plan. You released this a few weeks ago. It's an update on a plan that you've been working on for a few years now. This is a plan to prepare for flooding that we're going to see in Boston, sea level rise, stronger storms, all of this. It calls for a bunch of different stuff, retractable seawalls, lifting up parts of the coastline. You probably aren't going to get it all done. If you could do three things on your list, what's your wish list of three things to do to get Boston ready 
for some of the effects of climate change? Great question. I, I think that when it comes to what we want to do here is really get the collaboration mm -hmm. together where we have the the, the, the companies, the for-profits, the non-profits, the, the foundations, uh, and the philanthropic community in the city working in the same place. And I think we have done that, laid that foundation down. Uh, we're talking about 67 acres of new green space, 122 acres of revitalized space on the waterfront. It really does connect people back to the waterfront. I, I think that we, we have to, we have about $230 million already allocated in our budget, mm -hmm. the city budget and capital projects to, to, to have this work moving forward. You can't pick which is the best three, what's the best three, but Sure. I really think that, if you, you ask me questions, let me answer it. Four Point Channel, Moakley Park in South Boston, that is the, the, if we can prevent sea level rise from affecting, those affect the biggest parts mm -hmm. of our city. They affect the financial districts, the Chinatowns, the South Ends, the, the, the Lower Roxburys, the Dorchesters and Southeast, saving thousands and thousands of homes and the ability to really protect assets in, in our city and protect our areas of, of, of mm -hmm. job, jobs where jobs are. Those are the areas that we really have to start really putting the investment in for us. And in terms of financing it back to the delegation, you've got that money in your budget. How much are you hoping the federal government might kick in? Well, we don't know long term. I didn't put a price tag with long term because it's a, it's a probably it's a, it's a probably a, over a decade period of time. Mm -hmm. But one thing we we do have is a ten million dollar request for a FEMA grant to begin the the processing of the of the planning of the Four Point Channel area. Uh, so that's key. So right now, having a ten million dollar investment from FEMA uh, is important. And then the plan, putting the plan together. Somebody was in my office the other day from C40 uh, and they, they, they were talking about the plan they said it's probably one of the best if not the best plan they've ever seen in the United States of mm. America if not the world mm. on planning out resiliency and a lot of work has been done in this area so we're not starting we're not starting uh, you know on first base we're starting already into the game we're already we're already further down the field or in the base whatever the analogy is um, that we want to use um, to, to really make a difference if you had to guess when might we see some work started? We're seeing it now. I mean, it's done now. We've already started uh, East Boston deployable seawalls. Uh, we have Pierce Park Phase 2 being planned right now. We're doing uh, Pupilo Langoni Park in the North End, where we're going to be doing renovations to the park for, for our young people, and we're going to be raising the park. Uh, so we've already had, had significant increases. Martin Park, Martin Richard Park, uh, mm -hmm. on, on the Four Point Channel, that's that's already being built into that park as well. So we've already started. We started this work years ago. Sure. Uh, but, but we didn't have uh, a plan that kind of that one along the seaport that tied it all in together in, 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 into our neighborhoods. Now, now we have a plan. Now it's about implementing that plan and sticking to it and, and trying to, as different projects arise and different opportunities arise, pick off the different sections of it and piece it together. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, you know, we're going to make some, I think in the next, you know, three or four years, there'll be significant, uh, there'll, be, there'll be a change people will see. Mm -hmm. and, and the beauty about it is it's about, it's also about creating a space that it's not going to maybe look like a big wall blocking off the ocean. It's going to be a green space. It's going to be a berm. It's going to be parks. It's going to be baseball fields. It's going to be soccer fields. It's going to be all these different types of they things. It can help soak up that mm -hmm. water. It soak up, but also built into it. There mm -hmm. is like the wall inside it, so you'll have it right there. According to reports this week from the Wall Street Journal and others, it looks as though Boston is out of the running for the Amazon second headquarters. How disappointed are you about that, if that's true? And do you know that to be true? Well, I don't know it to be true because I called John Barros today and I asked him, have we heard anything from Amazon? Just because I've been reading in the Wall Street Journal and blogs and, and, and all tweets and everything else coming down. <laughs> and we haven't heard anything. Um, you know, we have uh, a thousand employees right now of Amazon working in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, we have another 2,000 coming with the development that's being built in South Boston. Uh, I think... Boston is a great world-class city. I think it would be a perfect setting, a home for, for HQ2, for Amazon. Uh, 
um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if we don't get it, and I said it from the beginning, uh, I'm not going to be necessarily disappointed because we've added 20,000 new jobs a year for the last five years, and, you know, people want to be in the city, and if we get it, we'll, we'll be prepared for it. So, um, you know, obviously we're excited about being in the mix. We're excited about being in the next round. Um, but it, it, there's been really... I'm not sure where they are in the mm -hmm. process. I mean, so you haven't received any no, I haven't definitive received, work. No, not at all. And I think the only thing that I think in one of the articles, it might have been in the journal, that um, one of the cities announced that that they're they're going to get it. And Amazon's reaction was kind of like, "I wish you didn't talk it publicly or something." Mm. So that that kind of puts my antenna up a little bit. Mm. But um, you know, we'll see what happens. But we're still, you know, Amazon still is going to have. Three years ago, they had zero presence in Boston. Today, they have a thousand jobs. In a couple more years, they'll have three thousand jobs, up to five thousand jobs. So, I mean, that's a pretty significant uh, investment in our city. One of the things we have to think about with uh, the potential for an Amazon HQ2 is housing. Yeah. There was a report out last month showing that a lot of Boston's luxury housing is being bought up by LLCs and yeah. shell corporations, not even necessarily people who live here, and that that's driving up costs. Are you concerned about that? Is that what you're seeing in the numbers as well? And what do we do about it? My, my concern about that is, and I was asked the question right off the bat, you know, what do I think about this? You know, these apartments are sitting empty and these units sitting empty. Mm -hmm. My concern is that the, these units are being sold to uh, people from international companies coming into our city. And I, I would love to see them call Boston their home. And I'd love to see them being invested here philanthropically, uh, themselves personally and through their companies. Um, that's where my concern is. I, I don't want to see us to become this building all this high-end housing and having these apartments empty at the top of mm -hmm. Boston. I think that it's important to, to have people living in the city of Boston. And, um, you know, um, they do pay a large amount of taxes, uh, those folks already, because they're paying extremely high prices. For, they're paying a property tax and a real estate tax. Sure. Uh, so, you know, my concern is that they, they don't, they're not calling here home. And, and I think that it's important from that, that, that if they're going to buy a house here, you, you want them to be vested here. In the is city. there a way that, from the standpoint of the city, that you can force them to disclose their them. names or some people are talking about they should pay, we should pay a higher tax rate and things like that and mm -hmm. i'm not quite necessarily sure if that's the answer i just think that we have to we have to continue uh, to do what we're doing as far as building housing in the city not just the high-end housing we need affordable low-income housing well we wanted to ask you about it's, that because there was a recent report uh which publication was it that said boston is now one of the top 10 mm. most expensive bloomberg. bloomberg most expensive cities for housing in the world never that mind is, the country. that's high-end it's also it, also plays Political did a story that we're building, we're one of the cities that's building the most affordable housing. Well, right, in the and you well. have increased, you're hoping to increase the number of housing units built by 30%? Yeah, we, we went from 53,000 to 69,000 by the year 2030, and by the end of this year, we will have produced more income restricted, low income housing in a four year period than any other four year period in the city's history. Now, in saying that, we can pat ourselves on the back and say we're really doing a lot. But it really is a regional approach. We have to, and we, we've done it. We, we've sat down at the Metro Mayors and we launched a regional housing plan to create 185,000 new units in the region mm. uh, by the year 2030. And, you know, this has to be a regional approach. Because there's a point where there's, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere right? to go. And, and also, it's, it's, you know, we're using inclusionary development money to build housing. We have the Community Preservation Act to build housing. We're using our own city budget to build housing. We're using city land to build housing. But we, you need a partner in it. It's not just a Boston issue. It's a greater Boston issue. People are, are, are coming towards cities. Uh, they're coming towards urban areas, uh, not necessarily just Boston, but all of Somerville and, and, and Quincy and, and, and Cambridge and Braintree and Chelsea and all, and, and all the places around us. So we, we did launch that housing plan the other day. And, and I think that, um, you know, getting some investment from the state, 
Um, we don't necessarily have a federal, we don't have a federal partner right now in housing. So the money is going to be raised through whether it's inclusionary development, linkage fees, um, investments by cities and towns, by the state investments. Those are the things we need to do, uh, we need to have moving forward. I mean, we, we have to continue, I think it's important for Boston to continue to be a, a, a diverse racial city a diverse economic city, an opportunity for all. And I think by, by that, it does go back to housing, your point. It's about making sure people, people need to be able to live here. We have all these jobs coming here. They need to be able to live here to be able to access those jobs. And then I used to do transportation. But that's a conversation that's a for issue. another interview. <laughs> yeah. For the next time. Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, it's always great having you Thank all. You. appreciate it. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. We're going to say goodbye for this week, but please reach out to us. Uh, I am at Paula Eben WBZ on Twitter. I am at Liam WBZ. And at Keller at Large. Please write in. Let us know what you think. Don't forget our Twitter, our podcast Twitter feed at Studio BZ Pod. And give us a rating and a review and subscribe. Smash the subscribe button and share it. I think we yeah. do a really good show. Every week we I do. listen to it and I say this is pretty good, especially me, especially <laughs> what I have to say. <clears throat> what and Liam's saying is... You guys are okay, too. We're just like you. We need love, too. (laughs) That's right. Our incredible producer, Jonathan Case. I send Liam a special edition of it with with everything but Liam Cutter. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the... uh, that's what the people that's, want. That's John. the podcast yeah. for dummies. We call that version. <laughs> but of course, uh, we'll look forward to next week when yes. we'll, we'll be seeing you. Always have to fit that in, no matter what you're in. Sorry, we had to run.